Hello from Austin and welcome to episode 78 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It is Tuesday morning, June 12th, and I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek and I still only have one child. One child, but I bet you can change that by the time we record again. I, I think the odds are good that barring an emergency episode later this week, this is the last episode of the National Security Law Podcast where I will have one daughter. Fantastic. Well, I'm excited for you guys. I guess Monday is the expected Monday. Big day. Monday is the day. Monday, um, I, I think I said this before, right? On or before Monday. So so by by this time, six days from now, there will be another baby girl Vladik in the world. So a prediction that you are going to receive both your second daughter and, and, and a ruling in Dalmazi <laughs> on the same day. Listen, it still hasn't come down. Oh my God! I I am convinced it's going to drop that like right at the moment. My you know my crazy reargument prediction is actually looking a little less crazy by yeah, the day. I think that's probably but, right. You know, still still I think still not um, not 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 likely, but maybe not implausible. Well, I think I speak for all of our listeners when I say that we're all thinking of you and Karen and Maddie. Mostly and- Karen. And mostly Karen, and we're all super excited for you guys. Uh, thanks. Well, uh, well, well, we the I think the NSL podcast account may be a good place to to check back for news. Yeah, we so th- this raises the question: like, are we recording an episode next week? Hey, we'll see. We'll uh, see. Depends, and uh, it will help if it's a light week, and we don't feel any particular obligation to. It won't be a light week to, for me to cart all this equipment over to the hospital. It won't, and, be, uh, it won't be a light week. I mean, we know that on Wednesday there's the hearing in Dover versus Mattis. We know the Supreme mm. Court will have at least two decision days. We're still waiting Some for some kind of inspector Carpenter. general report. There's an inspector general report kind. coming out on Thursday. I mean, you know, let's yeah. be real. It's actually going to be a titanic week. Yeah. Well, maybe maybe on Sunday we'll uh, sit down and record an you episode. You know, there will be lots of grandparents around. So uh, this podcast could be my excuse. Oh, guys, I'm so sorry. Work I've, calls. I've, I've got to go into the office for two for two hours or two days. Uh, uh, we will we will definitely have both a lot of substantive news and some good family updates for everybody. Come next week, one way or the other. But do we have any of at least either of those things this week? Hmm. How about this? As usual, our, our probably our lead sustaining member at this point, Dovi Mattis, has generated unexpected excitement unexpected right after our last excitement. episode dropped. We'll talk Syrian, about what happened. Syrian excitement. Syrian excitement. Well, apparently it's not. Apparently it's a little too exciting for uh, John Doe's taste. Doesn't want to go back there. Is, is Syrian excitement might be an earlier an early candidate for our podcast. That, that's title. got that's got some legs. Episode title. So we'll although, although there's got to be some joke about two dictators. Two dictators walk into a bar in Singapore. Dennis Rodman's there on behalf of Potcoin and fill in the rest. It's like a it's like a New Yorker cartoon just waiting for a good caption. Too implausible. Yeah, it's it's it as usual. The 2018 uh, story, you know, the showrunners are They've really are, outdone themselves. No, it's just lazy writing. I mean, come on, Dennis Rodman. <laughs> Anyways, we'll talk about Dovi Mattis. And when we've done that, we will pivot uh, while still on the subject of military detention. We'll talk about the 10-year anniversary of Boumediene. Today. Yeah, it's incredible. No one's having a party. I, didn't, I haven't seen any flyers. No, well, you, you have a nice uh, piece in the New York Times. We'll talk about Boumediene and its legacy. And then uh, while we're on the subject of the Supreme Court, we, we'll take note of all the interesting cases that, that still have haven't not. been decided. <laughs> God, they're they're determined to make I was, June interesting. So I was on, you know, our friends Christian Turner and Joe Miller from the University of Georgia. They were kind enough to have me back on their podcast oral argument yesterday, and I think their plan was that surely something would come down from the Supreme Court. <laughs> yeah, it, it, once again, like relatively speaking, I mean, there were big cases, but for yeah. the ones that we've been waiting right. on, we got away. Right, that's right. Although we learned, so I, I will just say we learned one tidbit, right? That Justice Alito had Houston, the Ohio vote. In case for January, so it's down to Breyer or Kagan for Dalmazi. 
Oh my God! And, and again, the overarching question of even if one of them was writing the opinion, are they revisiting that now Who and knows? thinking about taking re-argue it? Yeah, it's it's. He's not going to be busy in the fall. I gotta say, we haven't said this, but Dalmazi is certainly acquiring sustaining member status. Yeah, only 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 because I'm I'm obsessed. Um, well, all right, so um, after we talk a bit about Boumedian and the Supreme Court, we're going to talk about what really was I think the big national security story Friday which was the indictment, the arrest and the indictment of James Wolfe, the former chief security officer of the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence. Bobby, there's a lot going on here, including how the government figured out that Wolfe was basically part of this apparent leak and made false statements to federal investigators. It is, I will say it's a little bit House of Cards-ish. A little bit. And so we'll talk about both although, the although, charges although, and the investigation. Although the whole Ali Watkins, Zoe Barnes thing is kind of awkward. Yeah, the whole thing is <laughs> super awkward. Um, and then just because we have to, we're going to talk about this Fakakta summit, which, by the way, uh, the State Department says took place in Singapore, comma, Malaysia. Comma? Like Sing- Sing- the Wait, city, what? The city of Singapore <laughs> in the country of Malaysia. Dramatic news. I knew that they were uh, making <laughs> major changes to uh, geopolitics, but that is a stunner. Are they making major changes to geopolitics, though? Well, we will talk. So Trumplandia goes on the road. We have a Trumplandia a road, road show. show. Yeah, so first we piss the crap out of the Canadians, right, for apparently no reason whatsoever. And oh, by the way, President Trump tweets that the reason for his tariffs against – for the new tariffs against Canada – Actually have nothing to do with national security. Well, you know, a dark horse candidate for sustaining member is the general topic of supposedly national security justified tariffs. section 232 of the Trade Whatever Act of 1962. And and so during our Trumplandia segment, we will talk about a couple of aspects of the summit. You know the one we mean. We'll talk about what seems to have been agreed to and the president's authority to actually deliver on those things such as they are. And we'll talk about some stuff that didn't come up. Uh, sanctions relief, although the president's been talking about how he wants to get there. That wasn't part of the deal. We'll talk about the legal status of uh, any possible peace agreement. And, and then while we're on the general topic of sanctions, I think that'll be a good time to note both that the Treasury Department has renewed or made another contribution to its strong effort to keep the pressure on the Russians. Uh, and then we, we do have to note the, uh, the president's tweets uh, that relate to his supposedly national security justified sanctions. All right. And I think all that will be more than enough substantive content. We will close out with some sort of rifle shot frivolity. Uh, Steve, what's your favorite? No, wait, don't tell us now. Tell us later. What's your favorite Supreme Court case? Ever? Ever, mm. or at least maybe the one you most that's like a, to That's teach. a define the category type thing I think we're going to have to get into. All right. So, so you start, have my attention right, with define with, the category. Let's, just, let's start with sustaining member Doe. All right. Back to Doe v. Mattis. Um, we'll start with the brief headline. Then we'll remind everybody sort of what's going on at this point in the litigation. And then we'll come back to what's happened in light of the headline. The headline is Wednesday last week, uh, the Justice Department filed papers giving 72 hours notice of intent not to, and we're going to use this word as a term of art, not to transfer John Doe, transfer being a term of art signifying custodial uh, transfer across a border. Uh, Instead, just to release him as he requested, but releasing him on his own recognizance in Syria in a not fully disclosed location, but it looks like from what we've seen in the public record now, it's an area of Syria controlled by the Syrian uh, Democratic Forces. With 4200 bucks And a shrink-wrapped, brand-new cell phone 
Presumably with service, right? I mean, it's not just like a phone <laughs> in a box. So, what, what, have you ever tried using a U.S. cell phone overseas? Uh, what, well, who's to say it's a U.S. cell phone? Um, it's, it's interesting to ponder the, sort of the logistics of this phone they're going to give them. So the idea is, here's a lot of cash, and, and I think this may have may have been what he had on him. Uh, so they're going to give him like that, the proverbial sealed Ziploc baggie with his cash and rings and wallet and whatnot, and. Uh, and a new cell phone, so he can call. Well, I don't know whomever. Uh, Steve, you think there's a? You think there's any devices? In there? Any any uh, any malware kind of monitoring what goes on on that phone? It's like the it's like the USB fan they were apparently giving to the press folks who were attending the summit. Yeah, I love that. That was a Singaporean deal, right? Like, was hey, it? Yeah, yeah. Hey, it's hot. It's hot. Uh, plug this into your plug laptop. Plug your laptop. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> well, well, nice try. Yeah, there's definitely bonus points. Did for that you try. really think no one actually did it? Oh, I'm sure. I am sure several people did. Right. And you know what? That's the whole point of moves like that is it's just an intuition. It's it's hot. Hey, why not plug that in? Now I've been now I'm owned. Anyways, they're gonna they're gonna give him or they would give him all the stuff, but uh, John Doe objects to this release, this particular form of release. ASU is in court talking about that. So l- we'll dig in in a moment to the arguments, but first just a quick refresher. John Doe is the still unnamed U.S. Saudi dual citizen who's been in American military custody since his capture by SDF uh, personnel in Syria and then being turned over last September to U.S. personnel. And he's been held, we think, in Iraq this whole time. And there's been a habeas litigation trying to move forward throughout this whole period. Um, You know, Steve, we're not that far from when we'll be able to talk about a one-year anniversary with no actual uh, judicial engagement on the merits. And that's part of what I think both you and I are frustrated about here. Um, There had been a merits hearing scheduled for June 20th coming up in just eight days. And now, once again, that's been derailed by the emergence of transfer-related or release-related collateral litigation. Now, we already had a whole round of this previously because, famously, the government previously was trying to transfer him to the custody of the Saudis. Sorry, are we allowed to say Saudis? Country A. Country A. Was it A or or country B? B? Uh, It's hard to keep track with, you know, all these possibilities. It's clearly clearly the Saudis. Um, And the D.C. Circuit said, no, it's the Valentine rule. That is, you can't take a citizen and involuntarily move him custodially across a border uh, unless there's affirmative statutory or treaty-based authority to do so. The circuit said the AUMF, the AUMFs could be that authority, but we got to reach a determination on the merits that John Doe's subject to the AUMFs. So talk to us about the Saudi transfer idea once the government wins on the merits. And so it went back to the district court. The government did not, to my somewhat surprise, did not seek to appeal that decision to the Supreme Court. So is court. the clock run on that yet? That was no, but I, I have to think that if they were going to, we would have heard about it by now. I think it's an interesting question. I think one way to understand this this bid to just let go of him but to do it in Syria is an effort to maybe moot the issue. Yeah, I mean, how about this? The government has not yet right appealed the issue to the Supreme Court. Judge Chuckin, as you said, had set a merits hearing, right. a long overdue merits hearing. Right. And by the way, let's remind folks, this the, the way that ACLU has requested the merits phase to unfold, they've bracketed all issues on the factual circumstances of John Doe. It's clear already from the filings that the government and ACLU disagree about what his circumstances were. They, the ACLU depicts him as a sort of a freelance journalist who made a perhaps deeply misguided but nonetheless innocent determination that he ought to go to Syria to check things out on the ground there. Uh, the government's position, supported by a lot of uh, John Doe's social media posts before he went over there, 
is that he was uh, going over there to join and be part of the Islamic State. But none of that's being litigated right now. They're only litigating the legal issues and, and assuming the truth of right. the allegations against him or, or the factual claims about him. Um, and we thought we were about to hear at least the initial set of arguments, which would lead to Judge Chutkin ruling on the merits. And then Hallelujah. There'd be, then there'd be a D.C. Circuit appeal. And probably a Supreme and, Court appeal. And, and that alone was going to take forever. Yep. Um, but it seemed like with the transfer issue seemingly set to the side, we were going to get to the merits. Nope. No, because he is asking for release, and the government said, all right, fine, we're going to release you. Well, we're going to, quote, release, unquote, you. Right. And we're not going to release you here in Iraq by just having you walk out the front door of whatever facility he's in, wherever that may or be. Or drop you at Baghdad International Airport. With a with a ticket and sort of, you know, here, here's $10,000, buy a ticket to wherever you want to go. Or better yet, just, you just tell us and we'll fly you anywhere <laughs> in the world you want to go. Of course, they didn't do those things. What they said, which on – and this – we can start disagreeing yeah. perhaps at this point. Oh. I think – Telegraphing. I think that uh, – in the abstract, if you say that we have a combat zone captive, we're going to return him where we found him or circumstances roughly approximating where we found him. That's a pretty traditional way to go about things in a we've decided to release you from military detention setting. The wrinkle, of course, is ACLU's claim about the danger involved in applying what I think is a fairly traditional approach to release in this particular case. Yep. So, I mean, I think here's the, I see a couple of layers of problems here. So problem number one, it's complicated by the fact that it's a war zone, right? And, you know, even if the government had initially captured him and then decided within, let's say, 48 hours while he was still in theater to release him, I think there are some obligations that the government incurs when it comes to the conditions into which it's releasing people, even if those people had voluntarily traveled to the place where those conditions were present. So I think we will agree, and actually I think the government agrees that there is a baseline obligation to ensure some certain amount of safety in the circumstances of release. For example, no one would deny that the release- If, there, if, there's, an, if there's a gang of armed you know, ISIS fighters surrounding the facility where he's being detained, <laughs> releasing him- the, Or even better, right? So what if the release is, all right, we're gonna, we're gonna drive 100 miles an hour and push you out the door. You're released. Right. No one would claim you can do that. Why? No because one? It, no one would claim you can do that because obviously it would, with 100% certainty it would result in injury to the person, right. if not their death. Right. And so the baseline principle that there's some amount, you have to have some degree of certainty about the safety of the release, that's clear. Okay. The question's entirely about how certain must you be? And right. then once you've got some general idea of what the legal rule actually right. is, how do you apply it to this particular okay, fact so, pattern? So, so you and I are completely agreed, at least on that baseline. We may disagree on where that line is, but we agree on the baseline. Yeah. There's one complication, which you know, I, which Beck Ingber, I think, has been very um, um, proactive in making sure everyone doesn't lose sight of, which is that he's not in Syria right now. And so, although the government is calling it a release, you know, in effect, they have to transfer him first. Now, mind you, they don't have to transfer him from the custody of one sovereign to another sovereign, but they do have to move him from where he's currently detained into the territory of another sovereign to effectuate the release along the lines they're proposing. And at least from Beck's perspective, that creates additional questions. Well, I think, as you know, that's that's my view. When this thing first broke, yeah. and you and, I, you and I drafted a joint post about we this, did. I was very insistent that surely one of the central issues is going to be an attempt by ACLU to argue that though there's no custody expected on the far side of the border, this is nonetheless 
an involuntary cross-border transfer of a citizen, and therefore the surely the ACLU and John Doe would argue that this calls for application of the Valentine Rule. And strikingly to me, I don't see them arguing that at this point. Instead, they're arguing only the point about as near as I can tell, only the point about the safety of the particular location to which the government's proposing to release him. So to underscore the point, I think there's two different issues. One issue is, is the circumstance of release itself inherently dangerous to the point where you can't do that? Quite apart from that, dangerous or not, is the question of whether the Valentine rule should apply to a circumstance where, yeah, you're absolutely going to push a person across the border involuntarily, Mm -hmm. uh, but there happens to be no expectation on the far side that someone's going to arrest or deprive that person of liberty. Um, I'm really surprised, and I wonder if you're surprised, that the ACLU is not also making that second argument. Well, they haven't made it yet. I mean, right, so presumably there's still more briefing to happen before this hearing is now scheduled for next Wednesday. Yeah. So I, I don't know that they're not going to make the argument. They just yeah. didn't make it initially. Um, I do think, I mean, so it seems like if I'm on, if I can frame this correctly, you and I agree that there is a Valentine-ish question lurking here, even if right. the ultimate disposition is release. You and I agree that there's also a factual question about whether the circumstances into which the government is going to, is proposing to release Doe are sufficiently benign. Absolutely. Right. Yeah, I think we actually are entirely the same page about so what are we what disagreeing about? The application to uh, the fact pattern, well, I think. Well yeah. maybe we don't disagree. Uh, who let's, knows? Let's let's quickly talk a little bit about this potential Valentine issue. Yeah. So um, if you want to be kind of formalistic about the Valentine doctrine, it's a doctrine about putting someone into the custody of another government. Um, another way to look at it, though, is it's about involuntarily putting someone across a border full stop, whether they're expected to be deprived of their liberty on the far side when they get there or not. In, in, in that perspective, it's sort of an expatriation type rule mm-hmm. as well. Um, obviously, that wasn't the fact pattern in Valentine. Uh, it wasn't what the circuit had on had before it in Dovey Mattis at the circuit level. Um, but I think, it's, I think the, there's space for people to argue reasonably that the principles of Valentine should extend to this non-custodial cross-border push. And indeed, you can go further and say the, and insofar as transferring detainees from one facility to another is incident to law of war detention, we're back to the second part of Judge Srinivasan's analysis in Doe, which is that only flies if you have actually convinced us that he was properly subject to law of war detention in the first place. Once you decide that if and when the court decides that that the Valentine rule is not Once ACLU decides to make this argument yes, yes. and Chutkin agrees, then they're going to then by definition the government must lose right. by virtue of the circuit's ruling on the clear Valentine Agreed. issue. Which, which is why, yeah. which leads me again to wonder if the government might still take the shot at the Supreme Court on Doe. Because Doe is both law of the case and law of the circuit. Indeed. Now, just in case I mean, it, Doe, Doe is a casebook unto itself. It, it is. I, well, it's a podcast unto itself. Oh my gosh. I've been trying. <laughs> that could be a good title. Doe I, is a podcast unto I, itself. And I've been editing the. Uh, there you go. I've been editing the May DC Circuit, the 79 page decision for our casebook supplement. And it's fascinating because our casebook had nothing in it on transfer of detainees. Um, and so I'm using it as like a principal case to introduce the topic. Oh, yeah. But like trying to edit, a, I mean, there's so much in there, and I'm trying to get from 79 pages to like eight. 
Oh, I, my heart goes out to you. It is not an accident that I am not involved in any Casebook project. That just sounds miserable. Um, I, should, let, I should have gotten your advice before I agree Let, let me say this about the, the Valentine issue, and then we can move on to the, the issue that is clearly presented, yeah. the safety of the transfer yes. issue. Um, some listeners may be thinking, like, I just don't buy that. Valentine's about custodial transfer. This is a release. I'm, I'm sure we have lots of listeners who are sitting there saying, no, no, no. If you go back and look at 299 US page 9. I can imagine some listeners are not persuaded. That, certainly, I don't think it's clear yeah, that Valentine extends. You and I have always said, right, that what's fascinating about this case is it keeps finding ways to raise new and unanswered questions Absolutely. about the relationship between Valentine and Munaf. That's that's part of what's intrigued me the whole time. Yeah. Um, so here's here's what I think that the relevant thought experiment is. Uh, surely it's not the case that the government could grab you, Steve, from out, from this office and drop you off in the Yucatan tomorrow. Right. Not for custody, but just to puts you out of the country for a little even, while. Even if they had probable cause, right? So imagine they have probable cause to arrest me on suspicion of some federal crime. Yeah, no. Right? Assume the worst about you. You're a criminal. The government... <laughs> assume. And, and if I you, think we know. I think truth. everybody agrees that, that I'm a criminal. The government, yes, they do agree with that. They also agree that you can't grab a citizen and expatriate them that way just because it would be non-custodial on the far end. What? what well, would, I'm not sure Judge Henderson agrees, but... I, I, it's hard to know, but maybe we'll get that no, no, but I mean, if you well, re- well, let, if me, you re- let me finish the thought. Let okay. me finish the Sorry. thought. Sorry. So the point of the thought experiment is if you agree that the government can't simply grab a citizen and send them out of the country, you might say, well, okay, so I would extend Valentine or the Valentine type idea to a non-custodial cross-border transfer from within the U.S., but I, I'm not sure the same rule applies overseas. Well, really, like you go on vacation in Paris, the government, the U.S. government has agents that grab you there and just drop you off in, I don't know, you know, South Africa, that's okay. That doesn't sound right either. Sounds to me like we would all have to agree that in extreme cases, the Valentine principle or some version of it does govern here. At least for people arrested here, right? And then the question becomes once No, you... but but my Paris example is meant yeah. to illustrate that surely the same would be true even if you're overseas. So now we're back to Doe, right? So uh, sorry. I'm sorry. In my head, I said now we're back to Doe and Doe is italicized, right? Now we're back to the D.C. Circuit's May decision. Exactly. Right? Because this is where I think there's less room for Judge Chutkin and for the government than might appear at first blush. Because if you accept... The whole thrust, having now edited the D.C. Circuit's decision, the whole thrust of the majority opinion's Valentine analysis is that Valentine occupies all of the space up to Munaf. Right now, folks, right. reasonable people might disagree about whether that is a fair reading of Valentine and Munaf. Fine. I think that is a clearly objective reading of the majority opinion by the D.C. Circuit in no, Doe right. versus Mattis. That, that, that seems to be what, what the court did. And so if you accept that that's what Doe versus Mattis, the D.C. Circuit opinion, holds, then it has to follow that if, as, unless the argument is waived, there is a Valentine question even from a release if you have to move the person across an international line first in order to effectuate the release. I think that the government, if ACLU makes the argument, the government's going to probably respond with a formalistic claim that, hey, if there's no custody on the back end, it's just, it's an open question. And I guess, and, and this is what I was saying with Judge Henderson, right? So, so this is very much what Judge Henderson was arguing in her dissent in the original panel opinion in the D.C. Circuit in May, and she lost, right? That, that both... Both in general, because there's no custody on the back end, there's no habeas, and specifically, he voluntarily traveled to a war zone, therefore, how can he complain? That's the exact argument the majority rejected. So I guess what I'm trying to say is it is not clear to me that the government is actually going to be able to get around 
um, the original panel opinion. So I agree on the front end. I agree. I think that the argument. I think there's a strong argument that something like Valentine must apply, and that forces you to fall back on the the rule from the circuit decision. In which case, the government needs to win on the merits before they could. And so we're back where we back. started, right? Now there's this, and then there's the separate. And now the the question of the conditions into which he's released becomes ancillary because that's only relevant once you've agreed no. that the government is allowed to move him into Syria in the first place. Now, can you let me try to make a counter argument now that I've come down sort of. In, in I was going to say, you, you started off saying you're going to disagree with me, and I think we ended up in the same place. So, well, let's at least air the counter-argument. The counter-argument would be that, wait, the rule can't be that you can only return him to where you found him if you could, in fact, detain him, because it creates a weird situation where you have much more discretion. Like a one-way ratchet. Yeah, and, and, and so the whole idea should be like, you're not supposed to hold this guy, period. It was a factual mistake, it turns out, right. maybe. Therefore, you should be able to release him somewhere. Um and again, we're bracketing the issue of whether it's safe to send it right. back. So surely you can restore the status quo ante. And so if I were the government, I would argue that this situation actually would be different from the original circuit issue where we're saying he's an enemy combatant, we can transfer enemy combatants. Now we're saying, oh no, he might be, might have been a mistaken capture to begin with. Yeah. And the traditional law of war rule is that when you have someone you're actually not entitled to hold, right. you should be able to put them back more or less where you found them. So, so this is actually, I was going to go, this is where I was going, but not as a law of war argument. That I was going to say, the other thing the government could argue that's not squarely resolved by the panel opinion in May, we, we need a better name for it, like Doe 1 or something. Yeah. Um, the, the other thing, the, what's not covered by the government's argument by the panel opinion in Doe 1 is, does Valentine apply it to a transfer to the country in which you originally picked up. So your hypothetical of me being arrested here and sent to the Yucatan yeah. is actually not this case, right? The The hypothetical is I'm arrested, moved to the Yucatan, and the government wants to release me back into Austin. Right, right. You, you're on vacation. You go to Cancun on spring break. You get picked up there. They bring you uh, over to Panama. Yeah. And then decide, like, oh, wait, he's not who we thought. Send him back to Cancun. Put right. him back on the beach. Right. Now, surely, right, and so, and so the government, I think, could argue with a straight face. Well, wait a second. He was in Cancun where we got him. Yeah, he why, went there. Why, why, how could the law prohibit us from taking him back to where we found him? Yeah, actually, so I think that actually has legs. And so I think the upshot of this is these are the issues that these issues should be aired and litigated. Yep. Unless, actually, ACLU thinks that, yeah, what you just right. said is the rule. But, of course, that only works for Syria, right? So, so right. if the government wants to release exactly. Doe into, say, Saudi Arabia no. or Amsterdam— or, now you've got a cross-border move, right? So, all right. So, so you and I, I think, agree that the panel opinion is going to bind the movement yeah. of Doe out of Iraq anywhere except Syria. I think that probably should be right. the outcome. We'll call that the Saudi opinion, right? And that the real question is whether um, now, right, the last piece of real estate that the panel opinion doesn't occupy between Valentine and Munaf yeah. is a return to the country in which you were arrested. Yeah, that's interesting. All right, but the funny thing is, none of that's what they're arguing about yet. Right now, they're arguing about the totally separate question right. of, hey, is, is, it too, it safe? Is, is dropping him off the way and where you're proposing to do it the equivalent of pushing the dude out of a car going 100 miles an hour? Right. And, and, and realistically, I mean, I think that's going to be a fact, a fact-bound exactly. question of circumstances that, you know, someone with access to all the classified information is going to be in the best position to, to So do you, do you read the ACLU's initial filing as saying that all of Syria is categorically off-limits? I, I wouldn't go quite that far, but certainly that, you know, the government the burden ought to be on the government to show that the place they're proposing to release him isn't yeah. isn't the kind of danger I mean, right, they sell you point to the travel warnings and all right. the other but stuff. That's that's countrywide, that's so too much. Right. So the question is whether I mean, presumably there are safe zones in Syria, right? Yeah. 
the question is whether this is one of them. Yep. And, and so it, I think it's fair to say that there's no way to boil the doctrine down to some sort of mechanically applicable measurement of just how safe and, you know, what likelihood of what kind of injury would follow. So it's going to be much more of a totality of the circumstances, murky kind of, this feels too unsafe. And the court may or may not try to dress that up as the the specifying a particular calibration of the degree of danger. I don't think any of that will really be doing work. There's going to be a sort of a gut judgment about whether the facts are presented by the government. Because the government actually really trying to keep them safe. Yeah. And and just as, I mean, so some of our listeners might be saying, well, wait a second, you know, habeas is about release, right? Why does it, where, from where does a court get the power to sort of... Again, you can't release them at 100 miles an hour. So that's the same, right? I think it's... it's interesting. I, I've, I've been I've been spending the last well, not all of it. I've been spending periodic moments in the last week trying to figure out the best cases to cite for the proposition that courts have the power to condition a release into sort of to protect the bodily integrity of yeah. the detainee. And it's just always assumed. So there are these like old there's these early 20th century Supreme Court decisions um, holding various government officials liable, for example, for contempt of court for releasing a prisoner into a mob. Interesting that it was – so does that open the possibility that the remedy here would only be a post hoc sanction? Or is it just that in those cases, no one litigated in advance? Oh, yeah. No, so, no, 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 it wasn't. I mean, the the, the, the nature of injunctive litigation yeah. today is so much different from what it was yeah, yeah. before yeah. Ex parte Young. I do think that the release into the hands of the lynch mob example illustrates the point. Well, so I went back. So I went back and reread the transcript of the oral argument in Munaf itself. Mm-hmm. And actually, the, the, the lynch mob hypothetical came up three different times in the oral argument in Munaf when they're trying to figure out, well, wait a second, those guys voluntarily traveled to Iraq Right, they they file the habeas petition, but they don't want to be released into Iraq. Um, and what's interesting is the justices. I think it was Justice Scalia, Justice Souter, and one other justice who I don't remember, all just assumed without pointing to any authority that of course um, a court had the power to not release someone who was otherwise entitled to yeah. release into a lynch mob. I think that's got to be the right rule. So do I, but I just I, I would yeah. like a canonical citation other than the oral argument transcript yeah. in Munaf. Yeah, I, I agree with you on that. And so I guess where this comes to rest is, first of all, there's going to be a government responsive filing, yep. I think, on Thursday. That'll be fascinating. Um, there'll then be, a, I think, I think a reply brief. And, and then, then a hearing on Wednesday. Exactly. And, and then a decision by Judge Chuckin, and then an appeal by whoever loses to the D.C. Circuit, and we'll get another panel opinion. And Yeah, let's do the timeline projection. So the circuit will issue, okay, if the so circuit's Chuckin, for, give, if give Judge one, Chuckin a month. Right? Yeah, give she, a, she, a give, month for Chutkin. Right, so, so say we get an opinion in mid-July. Meh, earlier, let's say early after July fourth. Yeah, okay. Right on, right. you know, on granting or denying the preliminary injunction. Right, and then expedited appeal to the DC process. circuit. Let's say oral argument in late August. Mm-hmm. Right, decision um, by the end of September at best, right. probably October. And then now that's early enough that if you want to go to the Supreme Court, you can get it up there next term. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the point that I think you and I completely agree about that keeps getting lost in all of this is well. All of this is going on. There still is no even original, underlying, preliminary judicial ruling as to the merits of Doe's military detention. And while the normal course of things is certainly to more or less focus on one issue at a time, especially if the issue at hand, the collateral issue at hand, might make the merits go away, at a certain point, 
you know, you as you like to say, you can walk and chew gum at the same time. Steve, is there anything that would forbid the court from proceeding to have its merits hearing? No, there's nothing stop. There is nothing formally stopping Judge Chutkin from you know doing from two tracking this. Right. So if this is interesting, so if she rules against the government and says no, you can't drop him off in these circumstances. Then I imagine probably what would happen is there'd be both the appellate track, but there also would be the track of trying to figure out, okay, well, what if we change the plan a little bit? What if it's here instead of there? What if it's, mm-hmm. you know, with this additional element added to the fact pattern? Um, all those elements will tend to incline the court, I would think, to think that it's not necessary to go on and have the hearing on the merits. Um, but I think you and I both agree that at a certain point, when you're approaching a year of detention uh, of a citizen, you got to have that hearing. And, and again, you and I disagree about probably about how that's likely to come out, but they should go ahead and proceed to the merits. So this is so this leads to the very last thing I want to ask you about the latest Doe news, and then we ought to, we ought to move on because yeah. there is yeah. other stuff happening. Yeah, yeah. Um, why do you suppose that all of a sudden, nine months in, the government having apparently reached at least some kind of agreement with Saudi Arabia to transfer dough and having pursued at least some kind of discussions with Iraq to transfer dough, and as you've written in Lawfare, right, um, with clearly apparent criminal prosecution options here in the United States, why do you think that all of a sudden at this stage the government's now saying, all right, we give up? Because that's how I read this. Like, all right, we will let this case go away if Doe will agree. I mean, because if Doe had said yes, this case would have ended on Friday. Yep. Right? And so why do you suppose the government was willing to say after all of this effort and labor and blood and tears, you know, Doe, if you agree to be released into Syria, we'll let you go? Oh, I think, well, so first of all, I don't think they, they, they didn't ever want to have long-term military detention of the guy. Second, now that the circuit has blocked them from transferring to the Saudis as they had... Temporarily. Oh, I mean, because if they, they, no, no, if no, they had let, gone let me, back... Let me finish the thought. I'm sorry. So, I'm being an ass today. No, no, no. You're, you've got a baby on the way. It's all right. Uh, <laughs> I, like that, I like that answer. Yes, you are, but it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, the, the, main, the main point I want to make is that they no doubt would have preferred above all to see this guy back in Saudi Arabia in some sort of supervised custody arrangement. Um, they've been blocked from getting that unless and until they succeed in litigating this thing through on the merits. But they don't want to roll the dice on that. They're, I think they're going to win, but I don't think they could possibly feel, because I don't think I feel, that they, guarantee, they can guarantee a win. They might lose, and there's huge spillover effects if they did lose on the legal issues in particular. So, and I guess I say all that just to say, it seems to me that what that suggests is that they do not share your confidence level at the likelihood that they'd prevail on the merits. Uh, whether whether rightly or wrongly. My confidence level is that they more likely than not win on the merits, but there's a non-negligible chance they right. lose. Right. And given that he's not individually particularly important from anything we've heard or seen, then I think at some point the issue got to the level of a responsible enough figure who said, wait, what are we doing? Why are we taking yeah, it this It only took chance? nine months. Right. No, it's ridiculous. So, I mean, it just it scares the bejesus out of me that an American citizen could be held in military detention for over nine months with not even a preliminary, you know, with all of this sort of litigation maneuvering and machinations to, to, to prevent, I mean, not to prevent, right. but to... Well, there is a question here, I, and I don't know the answer to this. Yeah. How much, ha- you and I have been complaining relentlessly about the failure to move forward with the merit hearings. I don't actually know whether ACLU has been objecting to the delay. So, for example, when yeah. Judge Chutkin the other day canceled the merit hearing on the 20th and replaced that time slot with this collateral issue, did ACLU object or are they okay with this? No, I think they're okay with it. But, you know, well, I then, think then I think it's harder, if that's the case, harder to, to pin it on the government, you know? 
you know, wait, wait, hold on a second. I, 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 don't, I didn't take me to be pinning it on the government. Oh, okay. And if, and if that was what I implied, I didn't mean to. All right. I, I'm pinning this on the judge. Yeah, fair no, enough. No, no, no. Oh, oh, wait. I want to be as clear as possible. I, like, I have problems with some of the government's litigation tactics here, but, like, you know, not nine months' worth of problems. I mean, if I'm a federal district judge and I have this case, the first most important thing to me is making sure that I'm not setting a bad precedent by omission, right, and by accident. Right. And no, so, I, I think we're on the same page there. Okay. Yep. Um, speaking of judges and precedents and detention, today Ooh, is nice. a, a strange <laughs> um, anniversary that's largely going unmarked, right? It is the 10th anniversary of the Supreme Court's decision in Boumediene versus Bush. Pretty important Supreme Court decision in our universe. There was a time when that was the whole enchilada, right? I mean, um, you know, I, I think folks spent the summer of 2008 thinking Boumediene was just about the most important Supreme Court decision in like a generation. I had this slide when I present on this case that uh, has a uh, pull quote both from the Times and from the Wall Street Journal. And they both, one says, you know, uh, a bold rejection of imperialism by the executive branch. That's the time. And then, <laughs> and then, the, and then the journal says, uh, you know, brazen judicial imperialism, thus showing you that the one thing we can all agree on is that no branch should be imperialistic. Ah, yes. And, and I think it reflects, though, that whether you liked it or loathed it, everyone thought that Boumediene was like this hugely significant case. And after all, it had been litigated for so many years, this, this effort by the government to avoid having judicial oversight through habeas at Gitmo. Right. They fought tooth and nail to try to prevent that and lost. And that what happened? Well, so I was going to start. I mean, I thought it would be worth it sort of telling that story in a little bit more yeah, detail. Yeah, right. So, so the jurisdictional issue at Guantanamo, I mean, so this all starts with this OLC memo that we're now privy to that we weren't previously, um, where there was some discussion about whether Guantanamo would be litigation proof. Um, and the, 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 the then Deputy Solicitor General, Paul Clement, um, is the one who says, you know, I think we'll win on this issue. Was it Paul? I thought it was Pat Philbin and was, John Yu co-authoring a memo. And then, but there's also there's also a, a later memo that Paul Clement signs, right, in a sort of co conversation with the with the SG's office. Um, oh, I don't, I don't where, think I've seen that one. Where he says that there is indeed some litigation yeah. risk. That was also, interestingly, the original, I think, Pat Philbin and John Hughes yep. memo on this. It was a really good example of an objective, even-handed memo saying, you know, on one hand, on the other hand, here yep. are the cases that cut both ways. And it kind of stands in contrast to uh, to John's later interrogation. Well, and, and what I was going to say was, and and it also stands in contrast to Justice Scalia's dissent in Boumediene, where he accuses the court of pulling a bait and switch and quotes selectively from the Hugh Philbin memo and leaves out the part where they say there's there's litigation risk. Right. So um, the, the key thing is it was clear from the Clinton administration's experience with putting Haitian refugees at Gitmo that there were open questions and unresolved questions about whether or not the special degree of U.S. control and... In, 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 as uh, a statutory matter. Yeah. So, so all right. So the, the first litigation, which takes the better part of two and a half years, culminates with the Supreme Court's June 2004 6-3 decision in the Rizul case. And in Rizul, the court holds, I know you know this, I'm just saying yeah, this for yeah, our yeah, listeners. Tell right? the listeners. In Rizul, the court holds that purely as a matter of statutory interpretation, the federal habeas statute as it then existed um, allowed the Guantanamo detainees to pursue habeas petitions because the U.S. District Court in D.C. had jurisdiction over their jailers, Secretary Rumsfeld, etc. Um, and so in June 2004, you have what looked to be the final resolution of what had been two and a half years of jurisdictional squabbling. Um, a year and a half later, after there had been some movement in the habeas litigation, Congress, as part of the Detainee Treatment Act, in response to the Supreme Court's cert grant in the Hamdan case, for the first time purports to take away 
habeas jurisdiction over Guantanamo and replace it with this administrative review process where detainees would get a administrative hearing before a combatant statute review tribunal. They've got a statutory appeal of that hearing to the D.C. Circuit, and that would be it. Right, and, and it's very interesting to look closely at what the circuit's review authority was. It was narrow. Well, it was narrow in all but one respect. I always thought it was quite, kind of interesting. So the, the circuit was charged with ensuring that the combatant status review tribunal process complied with all its own procedures, which sounds like a very weak read. But there was one explicit element. They were allowed to check the sufficiency of the evidence. Yes. Yes. But, At, but uh, on, based, the, based on, the, on record. the record, right. based on the record developed below, not based on any fresh right. lawyer-assisted presentation of evidence. And so, for example, if you had extra record, unquestionably exculpatory evidence, it was not part of the appeal. Not part of the record, not part of the appeal. All right. So um, in the Supreme Court's June 2006 decision in Hamdan, in which I was one of the lawyers, um, the court holds the court holds... I think somewhat disingenuously, um, but cleverly, that the Detainee Treatment Act did not actually, that the jurisdiction stripping provision did not apply to pending cases. Yeah, I gotta say, that was such baloney uh, to construe hey the Detainee Treatment Act. Hey now! I, I, for once, I'm coming in stronger than Steve. It, to say that Congress didn't intend the DTA to apply to any already existing so, so cases. So at the risk of being a textualist, right? <laughs> I think here we have a It may have been poorly drafted, but there's no way they thought that they were only making a rule for whatever future cases might arise, but we don't want to touch the current one. Of course not, but the text, but but the text <laughs> of the jurisdiction stripping, the, the effective date language, which I may or may not have had some role in drafting, um, <laughs> is totally. I think. Okay. Anyway, it didn't work, right? Because yeah. Congress responds to Hamdan by passing the Military Commissions Act, which, among other things, like crystallizes and yeah. makes clear that no, no, we really are taking we, away we habeas jurisdiction. We need to apply it. Yes, exactly. And so that's what leads two years later to Boumediene, right? And in Boumediene, the 5-4 Supreme Court, with Justice Kennedy joining the more progressive justices, um, reaches two holdings. One, that the suspension clause, quote, has full effect, unquote, at Guantanamo. Uh, Guantanamo being in the, quote, constant jurisdiction, right. close quote, of and the then, United States. And then two, that the MCA violated the suspension clause insofar as it took away federal habeas jurisdiction without providing an adequate alternative because the statutory appeal of the CSRT was insufficient to actually provide a meaningful basis to contest the legality of a detainee's detention. A little nugget about that. The oral argument included, uh, oral arguments always have these, you know, I reserve a couple of minutes at the end. People get up and they offer their little, their little um, you know, rebuttals. And there was an anecdote offered um, during that phase about a particular detainee whose yep. record didn't show this, but extra record, they'd been able to go out and with like almost no effort at all, find evidence that one of the elements of inculpatory evidence, that is, that this particular detainee was linked to a guy of a particular name who became later became a suicide bomber, that that guy... There was somebody else with that same name. His right. friend wasn't the guy who became right. the suicide bomber. It took a few calls, but there was no way to put that into the DTA review process before the circuit. I thought that was a, a pretty effective rebuttal. Really effective. By Seth Waxman. Yes. So the other thing that I think folks forget about Boumediene is the Supreme Court actually had initially denied cert. Um, right? Yeah, yeah. That's an amazing. And it, this is a real rarity. So the D.C. Circuit had upheld the MCA, and the Supreme Court at the very, like, you know, in, I want to say, toward the end of its October 2006 term, had, or April 2006, had denied cert. Um, and then the petitioners, and there's a weird sort of statement concurring in the denial mm -hmm. by Kennedy and Stevens, Stevens, where they said, you know, 
we're watching. We're watching. We're watching you And we want to see how these CSRT appeals actually proceed. Yeah. Maybe the military Maybe commission act review process will be robust. Right. right. Um, and then the, the petitioners filed a petition for rehearing on the denial of cert. And on the very, very, very last day of the October 2006 term, the Supreme Court, without saying why, reverses itself, grants petition for rehearing, grants cert. Now, am I right that that was the first time a rehearing petition was granted on denial of cert since like the 60s? Uh, since the 50s, I think. It That's been remarkable. a very, very long time. Well, so it raises the question, what, what was it that had happened? Well, what, the, uh, the, what they'd done was they'd gotten the, the statement of a guy, an officer, who'd been involved in a number of CSRT and I think also uh, a, appeals process um, sessions. Anyways, this guy basically described the whole thing as kind of um, – plagued by command influence and inadequate production of uh, relevant information from the intelligence community. And who knows whether these were, were accurate claims or not, but they sure looked bad. And this gave the uh, petitioners something new to put before the court yeah. post-denial of cert. And it really actually seemed to have tipped the balance. Um, indeed. All right. So anyway, so Bumedian comes down, big deal. You, you already mentioned the Times and the journal coverage. Um, and its legacy has been, I think, complicated, right? Yeah, definitely. So, so at least at Guantanamo, I mean, I think there are two things to say about the Guantanamo cases. One, um, the jurist, Boumediene's been criticized, I think, in multiple directions, right? So some folks criticize it because of its imperialistic assertion of judicial power vis-a-vis -vis the political branches. Um, others criticize it um, on the ground that it was not sufficiently imperial. Um, right, that there wasn't enough sort of explanation of what the rules and procedures and substantive standards ought to be, that too much was left for the lower courts. This is, you know, among others, Judge Ray Randolph's criticism mm -hmm. of Boumediene. Well, the co lower courts were told, okay, go conduct habeas proceedings, and they had to go out in a common lawmaking yeah. process, develop this vast panoply of substantive procedural and evidentiary rules that kept a lot of us in business for years Indeed. writing articles to try to put our arms around all of it. But here's the thing to me, right, and this is, this is what the point I tried to make in my op-ed today. There's lots to say about whether you agree or disagree with the specific rules on which the D.C. Circuit eventually coalesced. You and I have both written more than we care to admit yeah, about that. We're, right? both, we're both sick of it. That's right. Um, but to me, the most important thing about Pometian's legacy, at least in this respect, is but it was the courts who were writing those rules. right? That, in other words, these cases were ultimately decided by courts, not by the political branches. right? And so to me, that was Pometian's signal contribution. The... Adjudication of the fact disputes yeah. certainly belonged in the courts, and, and, and all that was a signal contribution. And, you know, basically you get almost a 50-50 split in the 61 that go to the merits. Uh, the government wins a lot. Yep. Detainees win a lot. Yep. And, and it adds a – it helps to settle the legitimacy right. of it all to some That's extent. Right. Um, I do have a problem, and it's not a court problem. It's a Congress problem. Yes. The courts should not have been developing the rules of procedure and evidence and all that with no input from the legislature. Congress doesn't – get involved until after the courts have gone through this process They're basically for years. done. And then they codified more right. or less the results. What the courts had done. Yeah. So listen, I mean, again, it's a complicated legacy. We could probably spend a, you know, a whole episode just talking about it. Um, but the reason why I think it's relevant to talk about it today is not because there's real movement at Guantanamo, as we've talked about. There isn't. There are 40 detainees there. The habeas law is pretty stable. Um, but it's because, as we've talked about briefly on the podcast before, there are these cases coming up through the lower courts where undocumented immigrants who are being subjected to expedited removal are running into jurisdiction habeas stripping statutes, and the lower courts are upholding them by distinguishing Boumediene. 
um, in ways that I find deeply problematic and deeply disingenuous. And so I think we're reaching a, a point, we're not there yet, but we're reaching a point where pretty soon the Supreme Court might actually have to take up a case from someone here in the U.S. who is an undocumented immigrant, who is subject to expedited removal, and who is denied judicial review because of the 2005 Real ID Act, who says, wait a second, how come a non-citizen terrorism suspect who's never set foot on U.S. soil gets more judicial review than I do? Right. And so on one hand, the territoriality seems even stronger in the case you just described. On the other hand, those are cases, if I understand you right, where the United States is not trying to maintain custody over the people, but in fact, trying to push them back no, that's out. That's right. But, if, but so for, imagine, for example, that I am a you know, Central American woman with a bona fide asylum claim, although after yesterday that got harder, right? Um, right? Um, you know, if I, cr if there are various contexts in which I would still be subject to expedited removal, even though I might have a perfectly valid asylum mm -hmm. claim. And so I at least take the controversial view that someone in that position has a statutory right to their asylum claim, and therefore a constitutional right to judicial review of the asylum claim before they are removed. There, there's no question that Boumediene seems to cut strongly in their favor, but it, you know, undoubtedly the government will argue it can be distinguished on the yes. grounds that that was a rule for long-term detention. Right. Uh, we'll see, but I think you're right that the court at some point has got to address these so questions. It seems, right. So it seems to me that as we're assessing Boumediene's legacy on the 10th anniversary, yeah. looking at Guantanamo is actually missing, you know, that's its, uh, that part of his legacy I think is largely now behind us. Yeah. Right. Well, let me add a different uh, shadow legacy, if you will, and that is the, the closer to the core case of all the detention scenarios outside the United States, um, apart from Guantanamo, that used to exist. And we had this in Afghanistan and Iraq. And in the aftermath of Boumediene, there was an attempt to extend the same rule uh, to detention in Afghanistan. And it got to it, the Al-Makala decision um, failed, right? The, mm -hmm. the, the courts rejected, not the Supreme Court, but the lower courts. I can't remember, Steve, did the circuit ever engage on this? Or yeah, was it just there, Judge there are Bates? two D.C. Circuit opinions. Yeah. So there are two D.C. Circuit opinions in Al-Makala 1 and Al-Makala 2 um, that basically hold that at least as a constitutional matter, the suspension clause doesn't apply to Bagram. Right. And so it's, here, let me, you know, to put my cards on the table, I've always thought both decisions, in a certain sense, get it all wrong. Boumediene and Amakula. <laughs> the question shouldn't be... So the distinguishing factor was, look, the detention facility in Afghanistan is there in a combat zone overseas, whereas Gitmo, hey, it's Cuba, it's right off our shores, it's the constant jurisdiction of the United States. It seems to me this creates perverse incentives about pushing people from outside combat zones into combat zones. Oh, and conversely, agree. don't take people out of combat zones, even when that's the safe and wise thing to do. The rule ought to be focused on what was the circumstance of capture, not where did you decide to park the person after that fact. So I'm, I, agree, I agree with you, I think, 95% of the way there. I would draw a much brighter line than the courts have drawn to date between short-term and long-term detention. Um, and, and we talked about this in the context of Doe, right? At what point does the suspension clause kick in? Um, and I would think that there comes a point where anyone in U.S. custody, after a certain period of time, ought to have a right to judicial review of that custody, no matter where and under what circumstances they were initially captured, but that the where and under what circumstances they were initially captured should bear upon when that review, that, that right to judicial review kicks in. I think I would not be able to go along with that if we were talking about, you know, so at one point there's tens of thousands of Iraqi military detainees in the midst of an occupation setting and, and then the insurgency setting. I can't possibly imagine us having a judicial obligation to, to give them but all habeas. But here's the thing. If, if, even if we, unless we drew the line 
so far down the road that very few people were were caught up in that judicial review mechanism. Or unless you created an expedited procedure where those guys would basically lose all their cases, right? I mean, because the thing is, I, I got this a lot because I was I was one of those guys who was out there defending Boumediene. like, well, wait, are we going to apply? You know, what if during World War II the German POWs had had habeas, right? And right. my response was they would have lost. Right. I mean, like, you know, we were I mean, in World War Two, we were holding German POWs all over the U.S. Right. There were POW camps in like Alabama, for example. You know, if one of them had found a lawyer and had marched in the court with a habeas petition and I was the judge, my response would have been, I actually think I do have jurisdiction because you are in U.S. custody right over there in my backyard. And guess what? You're a Nazi. Go home what or, if- or go back to your POW camp. The, the question then becomes, what's the evidentiary burden? Yes. Right. And, yes, yes, yes. and I think that this low. It would have to be so low if it, if we're talking about an international yeah. armed conflict and all the rest. It'd have to be so low that it raises the question about what's what what's the point. I mean, we it, you and I might find it interesting to make sure the the T's are all crossed and the yep. I's are all dotted. Yep. But at a certain point, it's not actually doing any work. Listen, I, 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 these are the hard questions that the court never ended up deciding to answer after Boumediene. And so I think you know, in sort of trying to figure out what is Boumediene's legacy ten years on, right? It had a big impact at Guantanamo for better or for worse, yeah. right? It had a I think sort of policy influencing impact elsewhere. Its real impact, I think, was mitigated somewhat by the D.C. Circuit in Makala by not extending it, for better or for worse, that to Afghanistan. That was huge, huge. Right? Um, and its doctrinal impact, I think, is going to be next assessed yeah. in the context of these undocumented immigrants. Do you cases. think it's fair to say that it has contributed? Obviously, the central feature that keeps new detainees from going to Guantanamo, uh, they have to do with the political and practical circumstances, yep. but also the legislation that makes it sort of a tar baby. Once you're at Guantanamo, you can't be transferred out easily. But don't you think that it's probably helped deter the administration uh, of various presidents at this point? Yes. I mean, I think so wholly apart from President Obama's policy to close Guantanamo, I think even by by fairly late in the Bush administration, you know, the the Bush administration was dead set against new details at Guantanamo. Because they don't want to trigger habeas. They don't want to trigger habeas. And and so, you know, I, I think... Folks who want to say that Boumediene actually ended up not being that impactful are just wrong. It's just that its impact is very complicated. Exactly. And, and you, you really might even argue that, to, at least in some circumstances, I would argue, there probably are people who ended up in custody of, of third countries yep. or overseas custody who would have been much better off at Guantanamo. Yeah. Hard to prove, but I think it's probably true. I think th- all I, I'm going to say, maybe much better off at Guantanamo at various points in Guantanamo's history. I'm not sure that's true today. How How come? Just like I, I would have thought, the the best time relative to how you'd be treated would yeah. be currently. I I would have thought it would have been during the Obama administration. I think there is there is more. Think, of an, is there any evidence that it's no? Being, they're being treated differently now. I mean, well, no, but they're. Okay, this is going to get us down. Yeah, we, we've got so much else to cover. All right, let's pivot uh, really quickly. The Supreme, Supreme Court, Court has other things. Right. Um, so yesterday we had four more rulings from the Supreme Court, although none in cases having anything remotely to do with national security, <laughs> uh, not even close. Um, unless we want to talk about, you know, the contract clause of Article 1. I, I actually love the contract clause, but let's not do it. Let's note oh. what the, the shoes that didn't drop. Right. So the shoes that didn't drop. Carpenter, right? The big cell site location right. information. Which, which seems like clearly Chief Justice Roberts is writing. He's but clearly got what it. What that means, we'll find out. Um, travel ban, right? I think that's a last week type of thing. Yeah. Um, and of course, because I care, Dalmazi, which is now clearly either Breyer or Kagan's. 
So it, it's beginning to feel to me, it just seems sort of odd that that one couldn't have been written and released by this point. And I begin to think maybe... It's kind of like it's hard. Maybe it is going to get realistic. So here's the thing. I mean, when, when the court does hold cases over re-argument, you usually don't find out until the last day of the term, yeah. right? So, so on the last opinion day, they'll issue the opinions, and then the chief justice will say, you know, we're restoring this case and this case to the argument calendar. Um, I, I still think the most likely scenario in Dalmazi is a full-blown opinion, um, sometime in the next two weeks. I now think the second most likely scenario, though, is an opinion saying, yes, we have constitutional appellate jurisdiction over CAF. Um, and as for the rest of the stuff, um, we're restoring the case to the argument calendar and we'll rehear it in the fall. Yeah, that, I, I think those are the most likely things. The funniest thing, of course, would be for whatever's going to happen to happen next Monday while you and Karen oh are gosh. focused on far more important matters. Okay, just I, I, this is a little bit TMI, but the, per, the, 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 the C-section is scheduled for 7.30 a.m. Central Time next Monday. That means that at 10 a.m. <laughs> Eastern Time, I will literally be just walking out of the OR with our brand new baby. So you need to decide in advance, and you need to talk to Karen about this. Are, is your phone even going to be on? Well, I got to take pictures. Yeah. But we'll be in airplane you, mode. Yeah, you're going to be in airplane <laughs> mode. Just like seal yourself off, have a you know, set up a little reply for the endless emails, change your voicemail, tell right. everybody I am unavailable I, for the next I several hours. I am indisposed. I am indisposed. Now, of course, the Supreme Court added an argument day, uh, sorry, added a decision day this Thursday. So there's still one more chance that we'll get Dalmazi and or Carpenter and or any of this other stuff before the baby comes. Fingers crossed, my friend. So anyway, that's our, our, our Supreme Court non-update. One of these days, we're going to have a whole episode talking about Carpenter because Carpenter's going to be a biggie. Oh, absolutely. All right. Uh, speaking of... Law. <laughs> that, was, the, the, that was great. I'm, I'm so pleased by that segue. Speaking of law. Uh, speaking of do not disturb, speaking of airplane mode, James Wolfe. Airplane mode? I don't know. I'm, I'm done. Oh, that's great. Um, all right. So James Wolfe was the security chief security officer for the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence for a long period, well-known pers person in that community, um, and shockingly, arrested. Uh, the charges are several counts of lying to the FBI. Once again, it's it's almost required uh, to underscore. Maybe that's our episode title. Don't lie to the FBI. Lie to the FBI. So he, what he lied about, he lied about the fact that it doesn't he, matter. he was talking to reporters. Uh, he was caught red-handed lying about his relationship with uh, reporter Ali Watkins, who is currently at the New York Times and previously was with a number of other organizations. Um, we, it's it's not terribly relevant to go into all the details about that relationship. There was a relationship there. Um, I think the charges, the only thing that's interesting to me to say about the charges, it's obvious you shouldn't be lying to the FBI. If you do that, you are really running a high likelihood of what could end up being a total of 15 years. Um, they haven't yet charged him with mishandling of classified information. These communications with reporters, at least in some instances, seem to have been so that he could share classified information in an unauthorized way. He's mishandled classified information. Uh, Steve, do you interpret this as those charges are being held sort of in the background as, as something that DOJ could come down on him if he doesn't play ball? He has caught red-handed lying. Yeah. He ought to just plead. Although I just saw on Twitter he's pleading not guilty. Um, That's the dumbest thing. I mean, I understand that as a, as right. a tactical posture because the negotiations aren't settled right. yet and you got to plead. But so I think, and listen, super the, we've guilty. Ta we've talked before about the sort of complex questions arising at the margins of the Espionage Act. 
right, and exactly how courts have reacted to some of yeah. the, you know, messy questions about what do you have to know and what do you have to intend. So would he be a hard case or probably, let's assume, so one of the claims yeah. is that he probably leaked Carter, right. Page's, Carter Page's identity, identity. To, to, so, that, uh, so that Watkins could have a scoop. Right. Would that be a hard case? Just the knowing giving to a reporter for personal so, reasons. So, I mean, Page's identity was confidential. Was it classified? It was a, fi- it was a target of a FISA uh, order. So, but then his, that leaking his name of itself, right, might not necessarily be. This is, so I, the only question I have is whether the government has any palpitations about the relevant statute, 18 U.S.C. Section 793D, because Wolf, unlike, say, a reporter, right, is lawfully in possession of the information right. he's disclosing. Yeah. The only question I have is whether the government has any palpitations or trepidation about applying 793D to information that was clearly confidential, but where the specific items that Wolf himself might have been responsible for might not have themselves been classified. I suspect the identity of a FISA order target is classified uh, and was classified in this instance. So I suspect this actually, if they're holding it back, it's it's leverage. I think the bigger story here, right, and and we've talked about this on a very early episode, is um, the extent to which we're finding out how much the government's investigation involved investigating reporters. Right. So obviously it's inherent in the fact pattern because of who Wolf was leaking to. This has to be an investigation that touches on the media. Um, a couple of things to say about the investigation. So first of all, because of his position, there is no question that he had signed and released and given permission for all sorts of ability for the government to access his own communications. So a certain amount of that is just built into him being a security official who had, um, you know, in, in various ways, less protection for the privacy of his communications than would otherwise be the case. All that said, we are told in the public reporting that Ali Watkins uh, communications metadata for her, who she was getting emails from, who she's sending them to, who she's getting calls from and texts from, who she's sending them to, that these things were obtained by DOJ in the ordinary pro- course under the Stored Communications Act. Um, this draws attention to the fact that there is a DOG po- DOJ policy framework for obtaining third-party meta- held metadata like this in exactly the situation involving a reporter. Uh, and it's you can find it at 28 CFR 50.10. It's the DOJ media subpoena guidelines. That's mm-hmm. generally how they're referred to. These these go back to the Obama administration. There's always been... And they were a big deal when they were promulgated. Yeah, exactly. And so the idea was, look, the Obama administration was uh, notorious in some circles for coming down very hard on leak investigations and pursuing reporters. And this was a way of suggesting or, or trying to document that, look, there are procedures to make sure that when we do this, it's a very well-considered, from-the-top, attorney general-approved uh, state of affairs. So in case listeners are interested, here's basically what it requires when what the government wants to do is obtain, is use either a subpoena from a grand jury investigation or a court order issued under uh, 18 U.S. Code 2703D, the so-called D order framework, uh, to get communication records, the metadata for communications from third parties like the communication service providers, which, by the way, under the third party doctrine, at least for now. For the moment. Hello, Carpenter. Uh, at least for now, and I think probably post-Carpenter, <laughs> still will not be Fourth Amendment protected under the third party doctrine. So the statutory framework um, allows for getting them with something less than a warrant. And under this uh, DOJ guideline framework, nonetheless, 
the attempt to get them must first be backed by the explicit authorization of the attorney general, which must in turn be based on an application endorsed either by the U.S. attorney for the district that's seeking the information or a relevant assistant attorney general. And then there's a laundry list of relevant uh considerations that the attorney general is supposed to take into account. And there's a lot of stuff about how, you know, don't do this for unimportant things. Don't do this if there's other ways to do it. But I think it's fair to say, Steve, I don't know if you agree that it's not like it really constrains in any serious way DOJ from using the tools that could be used against any ordinary investigative target uh, in the case of a reporter. And reporters don't get some special shielding beyond the promise that it'll be well considered by senior officials. But I, I think that promise is not for nothing. I mean, so we talked about this, you know, I, I don't remember which episode, it was a long time ago, but we talked about like the, you know, was there some reason to be concerned about the Trump administration basically either going back on the holder guidelines or just sort of, you know, flouting them overtly. And I just, you know, I said back then, and I still believe that it's really a question of frequency, right? That that if there are one one-off standoff investigations where you know the senior DOJ officials who have to be in the loop are in the loop and say yes, go go use these techniques against reporters, that's going to concern me. But I'm not going to be like reaching for you know reaching for my I don't know my protest flag. Yeah, and why would one here? Because you clear it looks like a pretty straightforward case of a guy illegally leaking information to reporters, and, and he needs to be investigated. They're not going after Ali Watkins. She's not being prosecuted. Right. There's no indication right. so that unlike, she's for a example, target. Right. So unlike for example, what happened with Jim Risen, right? I mean, this is I and mean, so so I you know I I think it is always worth being very watchful of cases where the government is investigating the press. But I have to say this case, at least so far, and, and I, you know, maybe we don't know everything yet, hasn't really raised my my media freedom yeah. alarm bells. And I think that you do a service to media freedom by not getting unduly exercised in a case that doesn't seem like an abuse. Right. Here, here's a, so the New York Times is in a funny position in this case, right? <laughs> um, they didn't know until very late in the game what was going on. So here's, here's a quote from the article in the Times about this. In February, Ms. Watkins received a letter from the Justice Department informing her that records from two personal email accounts and a phone number had been seized. Seized, and so that they'd been the subject of a deorder right. or, or a grand jury subpoena. Right. Uh, and then the Times article goes on to assert obtaining a journalist's data without permission is considered by First Amendment advocates to be a highly aggressive form of government intrusion. Okay. Uh, and then it goes on to say, Miss Watkins, after consulting with her lawyer, decided not to disclose the letter to the Times, according to Eileen Murphy, spokeswoman for the newspaper. Editors learned of the seizure from Miss Watkins on Thursday as reporters were working on an article about Mr. Wolf's impending arrest. Awkward. Well, so here's my Very question. awkward is situation it, it just as a personal Is it possible it was a national security letter and not a 2703D order? Um, yeah, uh, I guess it could be. Because I don't, if it's, I don't if know. It's, I need to look back at the guidelines. Because if it's a if national security letter, right, there's a gag order that's usually built into a where you're allowed to talk to a lawyer, but you're not supposed to disclose the contents of uh, or the existence of a national security letter. So, I, you know, again, if yeah, it was, that's, uh, that's interesting. If it was a national, I mean, she would have been violating the terms of the national security letter she had told the New York Times about it. If it was, so I don't know if it was. I mean, I just, I'm just throwing this out there. But if it was an NSL, I mean, the whole point of the NSL is that you're not allowed to tell anyone except your lawyer. Yeah, so I actually don't think the guidelines, I'm looking at the DOJ guidelines, if they govern here, yeah. I don't think they encompass, because it refers to, quote, subpoenas or court orders issued pursuant to 18 U.S. Code 2703D. Right, and NSLs aren't 2703D. They are. 
No, they're not. not. Right, they're not. right, right, right. Um, 2712, is that? Or 18 U.S. Code 3123, which is pin register trap and trace. So I don't think actually uh, a national security letter would be the vehicle here. Now, I wonder if that's right. You, maybe we don't have complete All I'm saying is I don't here. think we all have the information. Like, yeah. I, I, I could imagine a circumstance where where someone like Allie Watkins receiving that letter might have thought that she wasn't allowed to disclose it to the New York Times as opposed to withholding from her employer for her own reasons. One one way or the other, I think we agree. Like, there's there's a lot of fascination here. There's a little little bit of scandal. Um, not really any hard national security, legal or legal policy issues. No, no, no. Just just once. It, but the two big pictures to me are once again right. The leak is the 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 crime isn't the leak. The crime is the false statements of the FBI. Right. Or in this case, I'd say both. But it's a lot easier. Right. Here's here's the critical thing. Easier. To they, I think they actually got this guy both ways. Probably. But it's really simple once somebody is asked right. a direct question right. and they flat out deny and, it and, and it's a lie. And second, with regard to investigating reporters or, or using reporters as part of investigations, um, there's every reason to think the guidelines were actually followed here. Absolutely. In fact, I think there's been some assertions that right. the Sessions and Justice that, Department did. And that and that what that that has sort of two connotations. One or two implications. One, the guidelines are, you know, perhaps not as protective as some folks would like them to be. But on the other hand, the Trump administration is actually following the holder guidelines. And so the real concern that I've always had about ignoring them or rescinding them, we can save for another day. Yeah. And I'll just say, for if anyone's still thinking like, yeah, but nonetheless, I don't know, this feels just too intrusive for the media, um, you know, if they were investigating Sean Hannity, right. you know, communications yeah. by someone in the White House leaking something outrageously nice. to try to delegitimize the Mueller investigation. I'm sure this never happened. I'm sure no one right. has leaked information inappropriately to Sean Hannity. And would you want Sean Hannity to be able to say, well, I'm sorry, but you can't investigate my communications the same way you wait, would wait, any so other citizen. I right? actually think I've been pretty consistent here. Right? Oh, I'm not accusing okay. you or anyone of anything. Cause, cause, I'm just trying right. to I'm trying to make sure that everyone's looking at this as a rule that yeah, – yeah. You don't necessarily want journalists to be yeah. immune from their part in no, being able to investigate also, other people. But you also don't want necessarily them to be subject to just ordinary process, right? And so I, I, I've always This seems that, like a good solution. Here, here. Okay. Um, you know what's not a good solution? <laughs> the North Korea summit. Having pot coins in Dennis Rodman to Singapore to cover <laughs> the, <laughs> the, the The moment yesterday when Dennis Rodman shows up on CNN wearing a Make America Great Again hat and like a pot coin t-shirt and shilling for pot coin while like sobbing about the, you know, the 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 shot Obama never took. Like, oh my God. That's so 2018. It's so 2018. So 2018. Okay, so we've got the joint declaration overnight for us uh, from Trump and Kim Jong-un. Uh, and in it, there are a few promises that the executive is making, it seems. Not not a lot, but a few. One promise is that we're going to uh, uh, provide security guarantees. They're not specified. Uh, Steve, any sort of separation of powers concerns or questions about the authority of the president I mean, to we're make ba- that I mean, promise? You know, we're back again to the question of just how much power the president has to engage in sole executive agreements. Um, at least some Republicans in the Senate are saying they want this to be a treaty. Right. Um, to me, the larger point is this is the same frickin' promise North Korea has made like 14 times before and never lived oh, up I to. Oh, I know. It. No, I was trying to. I was trying to skip all the uh, the policy stuff where obviously the North Koreans didn't really promise much. They, they let's be clear. What did the North Koreans promise? They promised that they would work towards denuclearization. We've seen this movie before. I will say that I I don't want to be too quick to kick Trump for this. Um, if it were the case that this ends up making progress towards denuclearization and a gradual opening up of the North Korean system, um, that's to be applauded ultimately. But the proof's in the pudding over time. 
in the meantime, there are sort of some interesting questions about what was really promised there. Um, the security guarantee is so nonspecific that it's hard to even know what this is really about. Yep. Um, he didn't in the document, but did in an interview afterwards say that we are going to America would stop participating right, in, in war military games. exercises with uh, with South Korea. Right. So I think that's within his power. Oh, I agree. Listen, this is again. I mean, this is you know newsflash to everyone. The president has a whole lot of power to do some awfully stupid stuff. Well, and and I think that the question of war games, it falls under the general heading of the commander-in-chief's authority yeah. to, deploy to, to deploy forces, armed forces, to have them engage in no, no, training listen, exercises. I, I actually think that there are a few things that come closer to what I've described as the core superintendent's principle of the commander-in-chief clause than when and where to conduct military exercises. Yeah. So, so he's not necessarily getting across any constitutional lines there. Now, notably, what he didn't do is he didn't promise to lift sanctions. Now, in, a, in an interview, he has said, we're going to head that way. He said he wants to get there, but he pointedly didn't actually promise to lift any sanctions. And it raises an interesting question. Well, what if he had? Did he have that authority? And it's kind of interesting. Um, we've talked a lot on this show at this point about sanctions regimes. We've talked about IEPA. IEPA is Congress pre-delegating to the president um, some degree of control over foreign commerce in the form of sanctions, and the president can turn those on and off. But in the North Korea case, although we do have a lot of IEPA-based North Korea sanctions that the president could turn off if he wants to, um, you have a backdrop of UN Security Council resolutions since 2006 yep. mandating under Chapter 7 an increasing variety of sanctions against North Korea. Um, obviously, Trump or the United States collectively can't negate those. Now, we could choose to act in contravention to them. We could promise to use our position within the Security Council to try to get them repealed, et cetera. But you can't make those go away with a promise. And he's that, you know, it's one reason to think that that wasn't on the table. And then you have one statutory foundation for the uh, North Korea sanctions. And this is relevant because increasingly Congress is looking into the possibility of taking statutory positions on foreign sanctions that are at variance with the sometimes lukewarm yeah. enthusiasm of the White yeah. House. So the North Korea Sanctions and Policy Enhancement Act of 2016 requires a variety of sanctions, but but does include a waiver authority for the president to waive those sanctions for national security reasons. So in theory, Trump could do that. A and national maybe... security waiver. Where have I heard that before? Exactly. Now, hopefully he won't do that and then tweet out that what he's really doing is retaliating for dairy for dairy tariff. <laughs> so, this, by the way, just to be clear, this is literally what he did with Canada. He literally tweeted that tariffs he was imposing on the ground of national security were in fact in response to a 270% tariff Canada imposed on dairy. Listen, whether or not that's factually true, you are giving up. You're saying the quiet part out loud. Yeah, it's really unbelievable. I do think that um, if you if you'd asked me a few years ago, could a president really ever lose if there's litigation where the president's invoking national security reasons, and if credited, those would solve yeah. the question of, of authority? Could the president really lose because someone says that's not the real reason? I'd say no, probably not, unless you had some hilariously cartoonish fact pattern where it was just made so clear that that was in fact pure pre. Text, yep. they are trying really hard to create right. fact patterns like that. Right. And so uh, request for listeners, 
if and when you spot the filing of any litigation that's challenging the 232 sanctions that tariffs, that can, tariffs that, sorry, sanctions tariffs that are challenging these asserted national security justifications. Let us know. Yeah, make sure that we don't miss that. We're looking for these cases. And indeed, I mean, this is actually something that I think we should tell folks we're doing. So we have a fantastic research assistant, uh, rising Texas law to Alex Holland. Way to go, Alex. Um, who's basically um, tracking as many of these interesting and important national security law cases that we can find. Yeah. Um, so if you have ideas for other cases that we haven't talked about in the podcast that you think we should be tracking, let us know. Yeah, and by the way, if you're listening to this thinking, hey, you guys already talked about one such case, the Severstall, Severstall Exports. You missed the episode where we said that that case very quietly got dismissed Just with prejudice and voluntarily yeah. dismissed. So so there's more to come. All yeah. this, and, and I wonder if the Supreme Court might shortly have something to say about whether pretext might undermine national security justifications for presidential policies. Steve, how are we doing on time? We're way the frack over. All right. Let's, let's not talk about armistice uh, possibilities because that didn't actually happen either. We'll nope. save that for the future. Yep. Should we just stop or are you going to share a little frivolity? No, I mean, listen, people, I don't think anyone really wants to hear me spend 10 minutes now talking about the Door War and Luther versus Borden and the great Rhode Island controversy of the 1840s. You've got my attention. I love all those elements, nah, but we'll, let's save yeah, them. We'll save for... it for another time. So so the spoiler alert is, yes, my favorite episode, my favorite Supreme Court case ever on multiple axes um, is Luther versus Borden from 1849, even though I hate the result. Um, and, and in another, another episode, I'll try to explain and why I find it so remarkably the fascinating. People, the people of Rhode Island are interested in hearing more. Well, and it's a, the, the 27 people of Rhode Island. Um, and oh, there's way dozens more There's than like that. one person for every letter of the state name. You know Rhode Island, by the way, has the longest state name. You were going to offend our Rhode Island list because it's the, the official Commonwealth? Is, no, the, the official name is of Rhode Island and... Providence Plantations. Providence Plantations. It's an official state name. Um Another time we'll talk, but my favorite part of the of the story of Luther versus Borden is the very interesting role played in the story by President John Tyler. Mm, before he croaked. Before he croaked. Okay. Well, and indeed, while he was still president. All right, I am intrigued. And His accident. So hopefully, our listeners are intrigued as well. Um, and if not, oh well, you're stuck. So, so we're not sure when we'll be back to you. What was this sometime baby next business? week? Yeah. yeah, baby, baby, maybe. We're all excited, Steve. Uh, congratulations Thanks. in advance to you and Karen and Maddie. Um, I don't know if Maddie feels very congratulated, but eventually she will. All right. Anyway, Bobby is at Bobby Chesney. I'm at Steve underscore Vladek. We are at NSL Podcast. Spread the word. Tell your friends. Tell your soon-to-be-born second children. um, (laughs) And stay safe out there. Oh, one last thing. Oh, wait. You you blew up my spot. No. We're going to get some swag going. I'm having... Oh, we are? The the Strauss Center team is looking into making some t-shirts. So stay tuned. This is is news to me. All right. So stay safe out there, especially from the t-shirts. Adios.